0: Hello and welcome back to Hif Player, the podcast from Harrogate International Festivals. You are joining with audiences from across the globe to enjoy Hif Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. We're thrilled to bring you, Bowen Salon North, Harrogate's very own TED-style talks sponsored by Bowen solicitors. In a time of polarised debate, Bowen Salon North gives you the time and space to learn from the experts and make up your own mind. Sit back, relax, and enjoy an insightful and entertaining talk from our expert guest speaker, Dr. Jennifer Wilde, exploring the human brain, recorded live as part of Bowen's Salon North, Out of Your Head, Out of Your Mind.
1: It's true. I'm a trauma expert. But what can stress teach us about overcoming fear? Or what can trauma teach us? about overcoming stress and anxiety and achieving extraordinary success. As a psychologist, I work to help people overcome post-traumatic stress disorder. This is a crippling stress reaction that afflicts soldiers and survivors of other terrible events like mining disasters, car crashes, and the sudden death of loved ones. As a scientist, I develop and test strategies to prevent post-traumatic stress disorder. I have developed programs based on the latest science to prevent post-traumatic stress disorder and to improve resilience for people working in the most dangerous jobs as police officers, paramedics, firefighters, search and rescue personnel, and most recently, frontline healthcare workers. In my 20 years of practice, I have noticed something remarkable. Overcoming adversity and becoming extraordinary tap the same processes. People who flourish with or without trauma as their catalyst naturally draw on seven key tools. In the next 20 minutes or so, I'm going to give you a glimpse of what they are, why they work, and how to get them, so that you too can become even more bold and more extraordinary in your own lives. So the first key and crucial skill is extraordinary thinking. Extraordinary thinking is about how to move forward, not why the past happened in the way that we feel it did. Extraordinary thinking nips dwelling in the bud because dwelling takes us round and round in circles, leads to no plan or action, and makes us feel rubbish. I want you to imagine that you have a very important uh, meeting at 9 a.m. on... uh, What day are we today? Uh, Thursday night, so it's 9 a.m. tomorrow morning, uh, Friday morning, and let's say it's an in-person meeting. It's not Zoom, we've all had tons of Zoom meetings over the last few years, it's an in-person meeting. You get up early, you get prepped, you uh, jump in your car, you put the key in the ignition, and the car doesn't start. You take the key out, you put the key back in the ignition, the car doesn't start. And thoughts start to race through your mind. Why is this happening? Why is this happening today of all days? Why me? Why didn't my mechanics pick this up last week? Why do bad things always happen to me? Now, imagining you are thinking this, how might you be feeling? I want you to imagine this scenario again, and this time when you prep yourself in the morning and get ready for this really important meeting tomorrow morning, You jump in the car, the key. you put the key in the ignition, it doesn't start, and this time you think, how can I best deal with this? How can I get to the office by 9 a.m.? Now, in the first scenario, with why thoughts swelling your mind, you'll be much more inclined to run back home, put the duvet over your head, and go back to bed. In the second scenario, with how thoughts, you'll be much more likely to problem solve and find a solution, you'll probably think about booking an Uber or jumping on public transport or even taking a taxi. Dwelling is an unproductive pattern of thinking, and the more we do it, the more we strengthen the neural pathways in our brain, making it the default mode of thinking when we encounter disappointment or stress. But is dwelling really bad for stress? Well, I work with um, individuals in uh, high-pressured occupations um, such as paramedics and police officers I've mentioned. And my team were really interested in identifying, can we predict who's going to become unwell in the course of their high-pressured career? So we specifically looked at paramedics. Paramedics have to make decisions Uh, in a matter of seconds that can affect whether or not somebody lives or whether or not they die. It's a highly pressured role, and they deal with this daily, life and death decisions. So we looked at and worked with 500 paramedics who joined the London Ambulance Service, so they were just completing their training, and we assessed them on a range of psychological and personality and cognitive and behavioural processes at the start of their training. We then um, met with them over the phone uh, every four months and uh, assessed what they'd been through in terms of trauma and stress and we assessed for post-traumatic stress disorder. And we followed them for two years and then we analyzed all of the data. And there was only one process that predicted who was on trajectory to develop post-traumatic stress disorder over that two year period. And that process was dwelling. So paramedics who joined the service and were um, identifying as people who dwell in response to stress, who overthink when they're stressed, were on track to developing an episode of PTSD. So, what is it about dwelling that is so problematic? Surely overthinking my problems is gonna help me to solve them. Well, if we pick dwelling apart, what we discover is that it's made up of a kind of thinking called abstract thinking. Why me? Why now? Why does this always happen to me? Why do bad things happen in the world? Uh, Whereas, um, how thinking, or practical thinking, or concrete thinking, which is associated with better moods and more productivity, is practical, it's about how to move forwards. How can I refocus my attention to the task at hand? How can I feel better now? So if we can help people to prevent dwelling, or to engage in practical thinking, can we prevent severe stress? Can we prevent post-traumatic stress? So that's something else my team has been looking at in Oxford, and so what we did, was we took a large group of people and we um, trained half of them to think in whys, why do bad things happen, and another, the other half to think about how our emergency workers going to resolve this stressful situation? And then we traumatized them. And <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it, it did this did all, all these studies have past ethics. And the way we, we traumatize people in order to study who develops PTSD-like symptoms is to show them really unpleasant what's called trauma films. So they're, they're real-life footage of people in car accidents um, who are suffering and dying, um, That's real-life footage. So. Half the group were trained to watch these films and think, why do bad things happen? Why are these people suffering? And the other half were trained to think, how are the emergency workers going to resolve this situation? And what we discovered, and what we were able to demonstrate, was that the people who were trained to think in hows were much less likely to develop unwanted memories of these horrible films, and much less likely to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So, dwelling is bad, and if there's one thing I want you to take away from this talk tonight, is dwelling is a harmful kind of thinking. And it's important to spot when you're dwelling and use this as a cue to think, how can I move forwards? And with the um, extraordinary thinking of a, a highly trained and resilient emergency worker, applying extraordinary thinking, this capacity to overcome dwelling, is one tool to overcome stress and fear. The next key and crucial skill is the unwavering capacity to create fluid memories. And what is a fluid memory? Well, to lead an extraordinary future, we must master our memories. And this means creating fluid memories so we're not interrupted throughout the day by intrusive memories. People who transition from ordinary to extraordinary clean up their memories. They create a meaningful relationship to the past that ensures an extraordinary future. No matter what they live through, they create this meaningful relationship to the past. They scoop up their difficult times, they dust off the dirt, and they change their painful meanings. They recreate their memories, they rewrite the bad times, not by changing the facts of what happened, but by changing the meaning of their challenging times. And this process of changing the meaning of memories is called updating. And updating or rewriting memories is what the brain naturally does when we recall an event. We rewrite it. Take Joshua. Joshua is an American soldier, and he was serving on a humanitarian aid mission in Iraq. He was handing out toys, and he was there with his best friend, Staff Sergeant Marlon Harper. And they were struck in a sniper attack. And the bullet killed his friend and landed in his right leg and severed his femoral artery, and he started to bleed out. And he actually died for 15 minutes. And the brigade surgeon was about to give up when he heard a faint pulse. But he knew, sadly, that Joshua was likely to be brain damaged because he had been medically dead for more than six minutes. But the miracle is that Joshua was not. He fully recovered and he campaigned across the US to raise awareness and to appeal appeal to US Congress to raise funds to support soldiers recovering from the emotional stresses of combat. He worked with CNN, Fox News, ABC, all of the um, news and media stations. And I interviewed Joshua because I wanted to include him as a case study and be extraordinary. And I discovered that Joshua updated his memory of himself from being a fit and healthy and effective soldier to being killed and weakened and to recovering with a wealth of knowledge to champion resilience and support the recovery of the emotional stresses of combat for other soldiers. And Joshua returned to Iraq and he took charge of 130 soldiers in his unit, welcoming resilience and emotional health really incredible for the military. So whether it's a trauma memory or a memory of a pitch that flopped, people who update their memories have fewer intrusions of self-doubt. And what does this look like for an everyday memory? Well, let's take an example, Tom. Tom is a 24-year-old software engineer and he was put forward for a promotion He had his interview, he blanked in the interview, and he didn't get promoted. So in order to update the memory, Tom has to first identify or spot what's the worst meaning of this memory? What's the worst thing about this memory for Tom? What does it say about him as a person? And he came up with, the worst thing about this memory, about me, Applying for this promotion, blanking in the interview, then not getting the job, means I'm completely incapable and incompetent and I'll never succeed. So that's the absolute worst meaning. So in order to update this memory, he then had to shift his focus to his achievements and spot their best meaning. So he'd got a decent degree. He had developed some code that had gone through his company. He was very well, and he had some really good feedback in one of his appraisals. So holding this in mind, he thought, What's, what is the best, what's the best meaning of my achievements? What did they say about me as a person? And he came up with, well, I'm a hard worker, I'm proactive, I'm a good problem solver, I'm a kind person with grit. And what this really means is that I can solve whatever comes my way if I put my mind to it. And then with the best meaning of his achievements in mind, he rewrote his everyday his everyday memory. So the memory became instead of I stuffed the interview and didn't get promoted, it became I uh, was put forward for promotion, I put together uh, an excellent CV and cover letter, I wasn't selected for the job but I learned I have good skills in problem solving and I learned really important questions that will help me to prepare for future jobs. I've already applied for another two jobs and have been shortlisted which means more evidence that I'm capable and competent. So it's important that we update our memories and see our difficult memories through the lens of our best beliefs. And this will support our journey to extraordinary success. The next tool is another memory tool, and this tool helps to unhook the present from the past. This tool is a trauma treatment tool We use this tool with soldiers who have PTSD and other survivors of difficult events. And then versus now helps you to focus on everything that's different now to the past event. So for example, if you've spoken up in a meeting and you've had a flat response, next time you're in that meeting, look for what's different now, not what's similar. So our brains are tuned to look for similarities and patterns, but it's really important when we unhook to unhook the present from the past to look at what's different. So if you're in this new meeting, look to see that maybe there are different team members there, maybe your slides are different, maybe it's a different time of day. Look to see evidence that people are kind and interested in what you have to say. By focusing on everything that is different now, you help to get your attention out of your head and into the task at hand, which is where your attention needs to be to progress your path to success. Then versus now helps to keep you rooted in the present. And speaking of being rooted in the present, the next tool is focus. It absolutely matters what you focus on and how you focus. People who transition from ordinary to extraordinary focus on what they can do, not on what they can't. They realize they don't have endless years to will their dreams into reality, so they optimize their time. And one of the ways they do this is to focus without distraction. There are 13 tips in Be Extraordinary on how to fortify your focus. What I want to focus on now are two different types of focus, helpful focus and unhelpful focus. And to do this, I'm gonna just do a little demonstration. So self-focused, Attention is unhelpful attention. So if I was quite um, concerned about sweating, for example, and I suddenly became self-focused, and I'm gonna have to make myself look like I'm sweating, so I'm just quite cold and uncomfortable, but if I was um, worried about sweating and I became self-focused, I would be very aware of the sensations of this fake sweat on me, and I would probably try to cover it up, and then I might carry on talking, but I'd actually find it really hard to focus on what I'm trying to say because I'm so self-focused on this fake sweat, and it would be really uncomfortable, and I would draw more rather than less attention to me. You'd be focusing on this bizarre body language I have and paying much less attention to what I'm saying. Whereas if I'm sweating or fake sweating and my attention is on you and on the talk, it's helpful attention, it's out of my head, out of uh, and into the world, it's away from uncomfortable sensations, it's away from my thinking and my feelings, that is helpful attention. And that's the kind of attention that helps us to feel comfortable and relaxed and to get um, lost in what we're, we're doing and talking about. Research shows that people are most satisfied when they're absorbed in the task at hand. And that task is challenging enough to be stimulating, but not so challenging that it's overwhelming. So focus, getting your attention out of your head and into the world. And the next tool, it's a really simple tool. Uh, it's planning ahead. And um, this is a tool that we, Uh, discovered quite by accident. We were actually investigating another well-known tool, but this one came out tops. Um, And planning ahead is exactly what it says on the tin. Making a plan in the evening for the next day and including an enjoyable activity in your plan dramatically improves well-being and productivity and improves mood as well. So what planning ahead is, is what I would suggest, is to make a plan in the evening for your next day, divide your day into half-hour chunks, and assign your tasks, and use the plan as a schedule to guide you throughout the day, and revamp that plan as necessary as you discover that um, you've wildly underestimated how long it takes to reply to emails, or rewrite that code, or write up that project result. Planning ahead works because it moves routine decision-making to the night before, so it's freeing up mental energy to devote to challenging tasks the following day. And including an enjoyable activity in your plan means you're more likely to do something fun, which is where you get the boost in well-being. So do plan ahead. But, how do you start the first task on your plan? How do you overcome avoidance? Avoidance keeps anxiety and stress going. There's no other outcome with avoidance. People who um, transition from ordinary to extraordinary overcome avoidance. And one of the ways that can get you over the start line is to use a three-minute carrot. So you give yourself permission to try a task or a behavior for three minutes and then decide after three minutes whether or not to carry on or to take a break. And everybody can start a task for three minutes. So give yourself that little push with the three-minute carrot. Another way to get started is to break the first step into a tiny step. It's much more manageable to do a small step like write the outline for my business plan than a much larger step, uh, write the background section. And carrying out one step, one small step, however small, gives a sense of motivation, a breath of achievement and motivates next steps. It also releases a bit of dopamine, which is a chemical pat on the back and motivates further steps. So use the three minute carrot to get over the start line. And once you've done that, get cozy with smart language. And what do I mean by that? Use I don't rather than I can't to resist temptations. So using the words I don't mean you're much less likely to give in to temptations than using the words I can't. I'll give you an example. So if you've decided to write an outline for your business plan on a Tuesday night, and a friend calls you up and says, come on, let's go to the pub, come down for a drink, and you say, I don't drink on Tuesdays, you'll be much more likely to carry on with your business plan. But if the friend says, come on, come down to the pub, come for a drink, and you say, oh, I, I really can't go. I've decided to do this business plan. Come on, come for one drink. I, I just can't. Come on, yes, you can. You can come for one drink. All right, I can. not And especially after. and you know, after we've been in lockdown, it's, you know, it's debatable whether or not we would want to resist those kinds of temptations. But if you do, try and experiment using the words, I don't, I don't do X, Y, or Z on this night, you'll be much more likely to carry through with your goals because using the words, I don't, increases your sense of empowerment with your own goals, making you more likely to achieve them. Another way to carry on Um, with your goals, is to use what I call future-feeling thinking. Most of us make decisions uh, about what to do next based on how we're feeling in the moment. But to overcome avoidance for good, it's important to kick it and to think about, how do I want to feel in the future? If you know that going to the gym is going to make you feel energized and motivated and happy, then make the decision to go based on how you know it's going to make you feel, not how you're currently feeling. Same with writing up an, an admin task. If you know it's going to help you feel rewarded or give you a sense of success, then use that future feeling to make the decision to get it done now. And finally, Overcoming stress and anxiety to lead an extraordinary life is truly a lifetime project. We don't want to wait to the end to enjoy it. So the final skill is to cultivate happiness. There are 11 tips in Be Extraordinary on how to raise your happiness set point. Um, One reliable way to kickstart happy feelings is to start or discover something new. This could be, it doesn't have to be solving the problem of cold fusion, for example, it could be solving a problem at work, uh, coming up with a new idea, or pursuing an artistic activity. When we're intently working on a task, and we're absorbed in it, and a problem arises, and we use our resources to solve that problem, we create a solution, we're being creative. And science shows that what we love most about our favorite activities, like playing the piano, or playing chess, or rock climbing, are the moments during those activities when we're being creative. You don't have to be an artist to be creative. It's about expressing yourself in an original way, coming up with a new idea, solving a problem. Science shows that when we're creative, we boost our happy feelings, and those happy feelings extend to the next day. So get your creative juices flowing, you'll feel happier as a result. And just to wrap up, every day we have the opportunity to make choices that will keep us stru- stuck in stress or will take us in the direction of leading an extraordinary life. Why wait until tomorrow to lead an extraordinary life when you can lead yours today? Tap. Extraordinary thinking, it is not overthinking. Overthinking is your cue to spot how how can I move forwards. Make your memories fluid, update them, transform troublesome memories by updating their meaning. Then, unhook the present from the past with then versus now. Focus, get your attention out of the, your head and into the world, use self-focused attention to that feeling of being self-conscious as a cue to reabsorb yourself in the task at hand. And plan ahead. Make a plan in the evening for the next day and include something brief and fun in that plan. And use the three-minute carrot to kick avoidance. And remember, I don't versus I can't to resist temptations. And finally, cultivate happiness. Discover or create something new. Solve a problem at work or try a new recipe or even a new exercise. The world benefits from extraordinary people. Be bold. Be extraordinary. Thank you.
0: Dr. Jennifer Wilde, ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, nothing ordinary at all about the presentation you have just given. Very. You are an extraordinary lady and I think we've all, I certainly have, I've made so many connections and seen myself in so many of your points here today and I'm sure I'm not the only person that feels that in this room. Here this evening we have, as you mentioned earlier, been through a very difficult couple of years where stress, anxiety has, we've heard so much about it but I think we've all felt it and experienced it. So. I know I'm sure I'm not the only one that may have a few questions for you, perhaps in the green room afterwards, but this is the platform now, ladies and gentlemen. Um, if you'd like to raise your hand, if there's anything you'd like to ask Jennifer with her wonderful expertise, this is, is your moment. So is there anyone, it's a little bit difficult to see in the room at the moment because, uh, with the lighting, but is there anyone who would like to, uh, to start off and, and ask Jennifer a question? Or shall I ask a question? I'll start, I'll ask a question. Jennifer, of all the points that you've made, the seven seven points there, would you single out, because there's a lot to take in there, an awful lot to take in, and as I say, I've identified an awful lot, particularly the dwelling. Mm. Um, What would be, if you have to say, if we've got to start and we want to move forward, what would be your starting point on the seven points that you've illustrated tonight? Where do you go from? Yeah. So I think... um
1: A lot of the the research that I'm involved in with the emergency workers and predicting um, severe stress responses in the future really comes back to disengaging from dwelling, so stopping the dwelling. and Really, it comes down to two things. One, recognizing what dwelling is and then getting out of your head and into the world. So If there's one thing to take away, it's to get out of your head as much as possible. And that's often involved in the task at hand. The more you're thinking about um, your problem, or you're absorbed in your head, the less you're involved in the task at hand. And we know that people's well-being is improved the more they're absorbed in the task at hand. And it's something stimulating, but not so challenging that it's overwhelming. Um, I'm often asked, "Well, surely you know, dwelling must help. I mean, we need to think about our problems." And I agree. We we do you know, sometimes need to think about why things happen. But if you find that you're thinking why something's happened for more than 30 minutes, you are on the road to dwelling. Or if you're thinking a lot of why thoughts and you're not getting an answer to any of those questions, you're likely dwelling. So um, it's important just to get out of your head as much as possible. The, The most effective way to break the cycle of dwelling is uh, doing something active so doing a little bit of exercise which is great during the day it's obviously a bit more tricky at night if it's keeping you awake Um, but just recognizing that that's what's going on is often enough
0: to break the cycle and give you an opportunity to choose to do something else. Excellent very positive advice there. Is there anyone else here this evening that would perhaps like to uh, yes there's a a gentleman, a gentleman, I'm sorry, I, you're behind someone, I don't want to. <laughs> um, right at the back of the room. Not easy to get you, to when you're so far away. <laughs> do you think that um, reliance or dependence on social media results in um, more dwelling or? How do you think that impacts on some of the uh, issues that you've raised
1: Yeah, so tonight? can social me- the use of social media keep you in your head, essentially, and cause you to dwell? Um, it, it depends how you're using social media. I often, my clients often ask something similar, and I suggest taking a break, like not being on social media 18 hours a day or constantly checking it, but giving yourself a time-limited period to look at it. Um, And taking it with a pinch of salt uh, is really, obviously, very important. Um, But I was recently asked, not just social media, but um, the news. (laughs) And should we be streaming news um, 24-7? And again, you know, I also work with journalists who are exposed to a lot of... um, They're covering a lot of very stressful stories. Um, And they're constantly on edge, and I think this barrage of um, keeping up to date with what's going on in the world can keep people very hyper alert and, on, and in a highly stressed state. So whilst it is important uh, to know what is going on, try to limit how much time you spend surfing the net and engage with social media. And if you're finding, you can just test it yourself. If, you know, when you are on social media, if it makes you feel worse, then limit the time that you're on it. Um, and that's often a good cue. Same with the news. If you're watching the news and it's actually starting to make you feel quite stressed and it's interfering with your
0: life, then then limit um, how often you look at it. Mm-hmm. I think particularly at the moment with obviously the Ukrainian crisis, having been a journalist for the last 30 years, even somebody like myself that is a bit of a news junkie, it's very, very hard to watch. And I know I sort of, obviously, it's, there's so much social media that keeps popping up on our phone and news alerts, et cetera. But I think I can only now sort of manage one big news bulletin a day, usually the 10 o'clock news in the evening, um, because I think it, it, it can. I mean, it's so dramatic that is particularly going on. I know we've lived through COVID, but I think the situation in Ukraine has touched each and every one of them. I think we've got time. Maybe there was another gentleman, I think, just towards the... Uh, Yes, I think there's yeah, one more question. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your talk. Um, can your seven points be applied to children in the same way, or does it need to be distilled and simplified? Because obviously, the last couple of years, even in my own children, I'm seeing huge anxiety and challenges with dealing with the world at the moment.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So, can these tools be used with kids? Um, I th- yes, absolutely they can. And so, a lot of these tools were drawn from my work with adults with post-traumatic stress and seeing them recover and then other adults have been through trauma and uh, what they did to become extraordinary but children do suffer from ptsd in the same way that adults do it's also child diagnosis and the treatment is the same but it's just made into a child-friendly version so it's targeting the same maintaining factors so these Tools would be really important. It'd be really great to know as a kid that overthinking actually isn't helpful. And super important for children to know that um, getting their attention out of their head, so instead of focusing on how self conscious they might be feeling. Or whether they're gonna make a mistake when they speak for example or worried about sweating or blushing sort of focusing on that Just really focusing on getting lost in the world and in the environment is going to instantly make them feel a lot less anxious So I think all of these tools could be um, transformed to work with kids, but obviously, you know, maybe using simpler language to get that message across but certainly The treatment for PTSD is is also used with kids, so just transforming it so it's understandable to younger people.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Jennifer Weil. Thank you so much for your time. I'm sure we'd like to show our appreciation. Thank you for listening to HIF Player. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to this podcast. For more information about our arts charity and upcoming events, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.